Well, good morning, Saints. Today is December 9th, 2018. And uh, as we begin today, I want to remind you a few weeks ago that uh, Pastor Eric preached an incredible sermon called Shimming the Foundation. We learned there to resurrect God's promises to Israel rather than to reinterpret them. And we apply those lessons to our lives theologically and very practically. Fine-tuning the faith of Abraham is where we went next. I was privileged to share that message with three, all three of us. We learned in it how close righteousness and wickedness can stand and their kingdoms apart. That's incredible. You were invited during that message to learn from our older natural bloodline brothers and re-examine your assumptions so that you could authentically stand on the will of the God of Israel. Did you enjoy that message? Come on, last Sunday, we had Israeli fire. Yes! Come on, with God-ordained coincidence, it happened to be the first day of Hanukkah. Hanukkah. We marveled as the God of the universe presented himself again and again as an Israeli fire. Amen. The light of the world passed through the pieces of Abram's sacrifice as a burning fire pot. He spoke from the fire of the bush to the leader of the holy nation. Israel's fire fell on the Levitical sacrifices and again at the dedication of the temple. The same Israeli fire fell on the temple of Israel's men's, Israeli men's bodies in the first century. And those elect believers set the Gentile world on fire. You were encouraged and exhorted to let the Israeli Hanukkah fire of God burn brightly in the windows of your lives as you stand with convictions in these days of darkness and spiritual oppression. Man, we have something special for you today. Are you ready for it? Yes. Oh, yes. Are you sure? Yes. Yeah, you got to get ready for this. Today. Brace today, yourself. Are you ready for today's title? This morning we will be studying Israel dealing with BS. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. (laughs) We try to be subtle here. Never provocative. (laughs) Subtle as a sledgehammer. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Say there when you're there. It says this. These things happen to them as examples. Somebody say, as examples. As examples. And were written down as warnings for us. Somebody say, warnings. Warnings. On whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. In more ways than can be enumerated in our time allotted today, Israel has served as an older, natural, bloodline brother and an example to us, the newly adopted Gentile graftins to their faith. Mm. Like all older brother relationships, the younger brother has a lot to learn from our experiences with our common father. Those experiences are both good and bad. This morning, we want to focus on the positive examples because centuries of preaching have been focused inordinately on Israel's negative examples. This emphasis has created a kind of immature, imbalanced view of the natural errors of salvation, and we seek to correct that while we correct ourselves. Amen. Well, this morning we will look at Bet Shean. Say that way. We say Bet Shean. That's the way you pronounce it. 
Because throughout the Bible and the unique situations that occurred in it, in that town, and around it, that are wholly pertinent to our lives and homes, it is our hope that it will greatly enrich your walk and be practically and theologically applicable to your immediate exercise of faith in daily obedience to our King. Who wants some daily obedience to the King? Oh, yeah. Who wants doctrine that can be walked out practically? I do. Amen. Amen. Turn with us to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 11. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11. Can can, can y'all sense it today? Can y'all sense just something warming up here in this place? It should be an expectancy in your heart about what you're about to hear. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 says this. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. The truth is, is that the whole of the Bible goes through great detail to present Jesus as thoroughly Jewish. Further, the whole of the Bible goes through great detail to present Jesus as the king of the Jewish nation. Come on again. The whole of the Bible goes through great detail to present Jesus as first for the Israeli people and then for the other peoples of the world. Jesus is, in fact, the best example of our older Jewish brother. While we stand in the position of the younger, adopted, surprising addition to the family. Amen. You know, we're going to begin this subject today. And we're going to need to begin where all good stories actually begin. Where they were intended to begin. In the Tanakh. Let's go to Genesis 12. And we're going to be in verse 7. And say, God's not done with Israel when you get there. Some of you are very, very fast. Come on, what do we hear? God's not done with Israel. In Genesis 12, 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Go to Genesis 13, verse 15. Say, God's not done with Israel. I figured that would be pretty quick. It's either on the same page or next one over. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Come on, this theme continues in Genesis 15. Turn with me there. Genesis 15 and verses 6 and 7. God's not done with Israel. (laughs) Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. The Torah clearly and expressly promises a specific people, a specific plot of land through a specific plan. Let's pick it up in the beginning of a 3,000 year old and yet an ongoing conflict and conquest of the land in the book of Joshua. Turn with us to Joshua chapter 17 and let's look at verse 16. As the pastors and I were talking about Joshua 17 and uh, you can say God's not done with Israel when you get there. It was funny. You know, we uh, have at least one of us that is not very musically inclined, and you can guess at which one that is. (laughs) Somebody said, man, this shows trouble from the get-go. Trouble from the ghetto. Trouble from the mission bin ghetto. Yeah, you know that. (laughs) Look at verse 16. The people of Joseph replied... The hill country is not enough for us. 
And all the Canaanites who live in the plain have iron chariots. Both those in Beth Shan and in its settlements in those in the valley of Jezreel. But Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are numerous and very powerful. You will have not only one allotment, but the forested hill country as well. Clear it and its farthest limits will be yours. Though the Canaanites have iron chariots and though they are strong, you can drive them out. Come on now. From the very beginning, the Israelites were powerful in God's eyes. But they were often far too small in their own eyes. Do you remember when they said, we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes? There's been a problem from the get-go. A problem in Megiddo. And there is a problem in the mission bin, ghetto. (laughs) Well, what we also see here in Joshua 17 is that God has a goal. And it's emphasized the way that uh, Joshua says this, to take it to this farthest limits. Say that with me. Say farthest Farthest. limits. Limits. Come on, this was to go to the extent geographically, spiritually, and even culturally. Because the inheritance that God was giving Israel had to be worked to its farthest limits. Come on, let's think about those iron chariots for just a second. Say iron chariots. Iron Iron chariots. chariots. See, just because we're not, most of us signed up in the military... We look at these things and we try to allegorize it maybe even too much. These iron chariots can represent the conflict between our godly desire to fulfill all that he has for us and that iron chariots of the enemy, those struggles both within us and without of us that affect us in our everyday life. When we look at something and the fear begins to immediately come upon us that we won't have enough to get it done. These are the iron chariots that we still face today. You know... You might need help like I needed help in understanding the importance of the trouble from the get-go. The trouble from Megiddo. And I want to do that for you because when you begin to see this map we're going to put on the screen, you'll begin to see that although God promised something to them, there were significant obstacles between them and it. Our whole hope is to show you on this map the gravity of the events In the past that happened there, in the present that are happening there, and hear me special ones, the events that will happen in the future there. There's been a problem from the get-go, a problem at Megiddo, and it exists in the Meshin Bin ghetto today. Are you staring at that on the screen? Yes. Between Megiddo and Bet Shan, there is a valley. That's where that arrow ribbon is extending from. Right there at Akko, which is a seaport, it might be hard for you to see, there is a depression that forms the Jezreel Valley. The Megiddo Valley and the Jezreel Valley open up between Megiddo and Betshan a channel that takes you to the Jordan Valley Rift. That is a north and south corridor that goes all the way to Jerusalem. See, in that way, it's a kind of gateway. Anybody who wants to conquer this land, anybody who comes into this land is going to have to get between Megiddo and Beit Shin, And that's where the enemy had fortified it. This strategic gateway is crucial to domestic defense. It's something like the front door of your house. It's no surprise then that these two cities 
formed a region that were fortified, that were technologically advanced. The people there were stronger. They were determined to maintain this as a stronghold. There was trouble there from the get-go. We see throughout the word that in this very uh, channel, this gateway in this valley, we had Deborah and Barak fight Sisera here. Come on now. We had Gideon fight the eastern kings here in this valley. And in Revelation 16, 16, it places the last day's battle at the same place here within this valley. Come on, I want to go back to the idea of iron chariots for just a second. This idea of fighting between what the world has and us. Do you realize we often think about God sitting upon a throne? But did you realize that his throne is more of like a chariot? One that has four living creatures underneath it that move in any direction that he decides with always going forward. This mark of a a process that our Heavenly Father sits upon. That we are supposed to gaze into the heavens and see and keep our eyes on it. Just like the battles that took place at Megiddo and Bet Shein throughout time, past, present, and yet future to come. This proves to us that those iron chariots are representing the ongoing battles that we must fight daily. We have to have our eyes on God's fiery chariot, His very throne, His very chariot that we can look to and be saved. When you're staring at this picture, you have to know this becomes a kind of focal point for the clash between God's culture and Satan's culture. It always took place here in preparation for the ultimate battle at Jerusalem. Can I tell you that there are many battles in a great war? And before you lose the capital, you have to lose in many other places first. So in many ways, what we're talking about represents all the little battles that are in your life that cause you to win or lose the greater war. Now, what may be... Most interesting about this in our next slide is that on a clear day like this one, this is the view across the Jezreel Valley with Megiddo behind you and Nazareth in front of you. This means that on a clear day, Jesus could walk out and see this focal point of the clash between God's culture and the kingdoms of the world. And he could do it from his hometown of Nazareth. If you are given eyes to see today, if it's a spiritually clear day for you, we hope that God will focus you on the clash between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God in your life and the iron chariots that stand against you. Let's go to Judges chapter 1 and verse 27. Say, God's not done with Israel when you get there. There we go. Yes. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshean or Tanakh or Dor or Iblium or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements for the Canaanites were determined. Say determined. Determined. They were determined to live in that land. What we see here in that map and what we've, we're, we're capitalizing on is that in between Megiddo and Bethshean. The enemy had embedded, he had entrenched these cultural strongholds to dispossess the inheritance of the people of God. And what the people of God were supposed to do is to go in and uproot and drive these things out. I I once was clearing a flower bed in front of my home for a construction (laughs) project. And this little bitty beautiful bush called a azalea bush. 
uh, easy to cut down. I had to take a one-ton truck with a chain and tie it around the roots and go full speed to get that thing just to budge. It took me three days of digging, cutting, and pulling with a one-ton truck to finally get that thing embedded. How much more then does it require the people of God to continue to counter these cultural forces that the enemy has entrenched and embedded in the gateway of God's promises? Come on, that's good. That's good, Pastor. It is. This idea of the battle of the determined. They were determined to live in that land. Any parents have any determined kids at your house? <laughs> huh? How about in the children's church right now? <laughs> I hear them. <laughs> we call it a battle of the wills. By the way, as a parent, you should never lose the battle of the will. Right? Amen. If you lose it to them when they're two, you're going to be in a real, real hard time by the time they get to be five or ten or fifteen. You win early and you win often because you're going to be a good parent. We understand this idea, this battle of the determined. Ultimately, it's going to be a question of who will be more determined to fulfill their God's will. Mm. Mm. Can you be classified as a person who is determined to do God's will? On the difficult days, when things are most pressing against you, when most odds are against you, are you just straight up determined to do God's will? The enemy is determined to get at you. The enemy is determined to kill, to kill, steal, and destroy everything that you have. Are you determined to do God's will in this place today? I'm reminded of a passage in 2 Kings. I believe it's 2 Kings 3. The people of God are battling the enemy. And they're winning. They're victorious. God is doing miracles. The way the enemy stopped God's people is he began to sacrifice his own children on the altar to their gods. Are you determined to offer everything you have, including your kids, to our God that we might be successful? This is a battle of determination, my friends. It's very good. Joshua's word to the people of Israel regarding this region was they are strong. He never denied at any time how difficult this would be. But he also said, you are strong and numerous and you can drive them out. The problem was not the strength of the people. The problem was the lack of awareness of God's power with God's people. Come on. Have you ever been in that situation? When we're talking about this, we are not talking about denying how strong cultural trends are. We're not talking about ignoring the wave of secularism, ignoring the wave of paganism, ignoring what's happening all around us. We're saying it is strong, but we as the people of God are supposed to be stronger. Amen. Amen. Would you like to get stronger? Yes. This makes me think of the faith of Abraham. In Romans 4, it says that Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead and that his wife was barren since she is older. And yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. This battle for determination has to do with knowing where you must stand, where you must go, and never wavering. Because once it becomes negotiable for you, you lose the battle. I want to talk to you about an unfortunate request, an unfortunate king, and Credence Clearwater Revival's fortunate son. (laughs) When we're thinking of King Saul, it's important to note 
that the methods of Saul were exactly like the nations around him. He ruled through fear and intimidation. He worked based on consensus. He was like the nations around him. He was personally losing the battle for determination. He was one life losing the battle of determination. Well, another way that we see that Israel was losing this battle of determination was in their request of Saul. They, they said, give us a king like the nations around us. That as a family unit, the people of God, the family of Jacob, they were asking for a replication of what the world was already trying to embed within them. Come on, what does this look like? This may look like in your family, a wife's heart longing to have a husband like the one that she sees in the movies. Uh-oh. No longer is my wife allowed to watch Thor. No. That is banned forever. Done. Along with about 20 other movies I can think of right now. Okay. Anything containing Brad Pitt or yeah, whoever. I'm sorry. I'm distracted by this smoking hot redhead right Why here. Why are so of many of you girls red in the face? I don't understand. <laughs> well, how, that, that's, a normal, that's a family, right? What about a church family? I think this is more common and easier to see is give us a pastor like we see those leading successful businesses. They want a CEO and not a pastor of the kingdom of God. Man, this brings up such a great need for David's son. Come on, CCR fans. Not a senator's son. Yeah. Not just some random fortunate one. But the King David's son. Amen. That he might come to restore the nation's determination to bring about the very will of God on the earth. As we're talking about this, it's our hope that you begin to examine your personal determination. The direction or determination of your family. You might even need to examine your commitment to this community's determination to follow the will of God. There's a very important lesson coming. We want to start it in 1 Samuel 31. When you get to 1 Samuel 31, slide your finger down your page and find the 10th verse. Because this has earth-shattering consequences. Is everybody there? See, we lost Tamika for a minute, and y'all went quiet on us. God help us without Tamika. Damien, you're going to have to go lay hands on some of these people to get them to wake up. Are y'all there? Amen. In 1 Samuel 31.10, they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall at Bet Shen. Do you know what we're talking about here? The king that lost personally, the nation that gave in on a family level and ultimately would not see redemption as a nation until a son of David appears, their king is put as a trophy on the wall of Bet Shin. How many times have we seen a man of God that was once fully determined, a family that was once fully determined, churches full of families that were once fully determined, end up a trophy to Bet Shin, nailed to their wall. When we give in to the wicked, this makes us a trophy on their wall. Picture the king of Israel nailed to the temple of a foreign god. Dead. Disgraced. 
How many men of God have gone down like that? How many families have gone down like that? How many times is the story about that church started well and today they're as worldly as any other? We do not want to be trophies on the wall of the enemy. That's good. Because we're fighting to keep each and every one of us in this room from being a trophy on the wall of the enemy, we want to show you another passage. In 1 Chronicles chapter 10, we're going to read verses 8 through 10. 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. Amen. Come on, y'all coming to laugh. See, the problem is, is that we can agree quickly when Pastor Eric mentioned something about not wanting to be a trophy on the enemy's wall. The problem is, is that it's all too regular that people end up being trophies on the enemy's wall. Look here in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, beginning in verse 8. It says this, The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his sons. Oh no. Wow, you know, it just doesn't stop with you. No. There are generations that are counting on you to do this rightly. Saul and his sons had fallen on Mount Gilboa. They stripped him, took his head and his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines Listen to this. To proclaim the news among their idols and their people. Boy, if that's not the spirit of Bet-Shean, I don't know what is. This idea that they're going to proclaim their victory to the idols and their people. They put his armor in the temple of their gods and they hung his head in the temple of Dagon. Are you getting this? Is this sinking into your heart right now? Oh yeah. The failure and defeat of Saul and his sons became a headline. It became a trophy for the enemy. Something that they could revel in and take great delight in. This happens in our headlines and in our, our newspapers every single time a man of God falls. Every time there's a stumble. I can assure you they're wanting to plaster their Weaknesses on the wall, and the truth is, is we know it because they want to plaster our weaknesses all over the headlines. Yeah. What does it look like to be overcome with this kind of BS, this spirit of Beit Shin? In the 50s, a man named Jerry Lee Lewis was singing about, goodness gracious, great balls of fire. Now he's in a great ball of fire. This is because he was thrown out of a seminary and ended up married to his cousin. He became a trophy on the wall of Bet Shin. In the 70s, Bob Dylan, a famous artist in the culture of Bet Shin in this world, was born again and then later, within three years, departed from Christianity. Only after just about three years. And he became another trophy on the wall of Bet Shin. Think about such an obvious one. Jimmy Swagger. So well documented. The very public sex scandals. For literally decades after that happened in the late 80s. You can still find clips readily available. From the newsroom and the headlines that show his repentance in front of a group of people. It's still mocked in memes today. His actions caused him to become a trophy of Bet-Shin. When I came into Christ, every beautiful little girl wanted to be Amy Grant. And then she committed adultery. And she became a trophy on the wall of Bet-Shin. 
When you guys remember Jim Baker back in the 80s, from a huge ministry, eventually jailed for embezzlement and adultery, mm. becoming another trophy on the walls of Bethsheen. Carlton Pearson, one of the first charismatics to openly accept homosexuals as orthodox. He became a trophy of Bethsheen. Mega church pastor Clint Brown. He was a worship leader and a pastor, but like so many, he couldn't stay away from women and money. And so front page of Bet-Shin newspaper, another BS trophy on the wall of Bet-Shin. Come on, there's Ted Haggard, a phenomenal man of God that changed the culture of Colorado Springs. And he eventually became famous for predatory homosexual behavior. A trophy on the wall of Bet-Shin. Todd Bentley. Committing adultery while being a leader of one of the largest revivals in history. He became a trophy of Bet Shan. Rob Bell, one of the greatest teachers that I ever got to witness. He became so confused that he ended up a universalist. And in the middle of that, became an apologist for every sinful trend within Christianity. Another trophy on the wall of Bet Shan. There's Mark Driscoll. Resorted to plagiarism and misuse of church funds to promote his own kingdom enterprises. Became a trophy on the wall of Bethsheen. Consider Creflo Dollar, who's so famous for being a prosperity pimp that people barely acknowledge him getting arrested for choking and punching his daughter. You can say he went full-blown maghetto on that situation <laughs> and In became his, a trophy of Bethsheen. In his mugshot... He looked like he was covered in the spirit of BS. Bait Chim. I know his press release was afterwards. T.D. Jakes, who despite being one of the nation's most eloquent preachers, maybe the world's most eloquent preachers, can no longer tell right from wrong on the topic of homosexuality. How can we not say that is well on his way to being made into a trophy on the walls of Bet Chim? Another one in this long list is Bill Hybels. You know, a supposed model of a megachurch success. And he was recently forced to step down because of decades of sexual misconduct. A trophy on the wall of that shin. It doesn't just stop with ministers. We can find musicians. Israel Houghton, Michael Ketterer, Lauren Daigle. We can continue this list literally ad nauseum. And it is nauseating, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What we are not trying to get to is present these people that they'd never had a relationship with the Lord. No, they clearly did. Our hearts are broken as pastors as we're going through this list and preparing things like this, going, many of these men are some of the most anointed, talented, gifted human beings you may ever find on this planet. But the savage spirit of bet can't be defeated only by king, God-appointed kings like Saul. Like these men that we've mentioned to you who had the stench of BS on them. Had that stench of Bet-Shean on them. That spirit is alive and well with us. How long would the list for this church be? If we recorded the list of friends, families, even brothers who've defected from not only our church, but who've defected from the kingdom because of this BS spirit. Yeah. This spirit of Bet-Shean kills kings that don't operate in, in the kingship of heaven. Our weapons cannot be the weapons of this world. 
We cannot be friends with what the world is doing. We become an enemy of God when we become a friend of the world. We must have otherworldly weapons that are suitable for spiritual success. But valiant men do not lose a battle and then give up, reinterpret, or retreat. They soldier on in the name of Christ and in the hope of a resurrection. I want to be really clear. We still hold hope for those that we listed previously. And we hold hope for those that you're glad we didn't list because they came from this body. The hope of God is in the resurrection of the dead. We believe that God is able to rise people out of the ashes. Where this story started is not where it ends. Matthew is going to take us into a scripture that gives us hope even for those that have been smeared with the spirit of Beit Shin. But what we're trying to do is warn you how not to become a trophy on the halls of Beit Shin's walls. This is a battle of the determined. Come on. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 31. We'll start with verse 12. We're going to get some hope this morning. Come on, do y'all need some hope? Yes. Amen. There you go, Rob. Here we go. All their valiant men. Say valiant men. Valiant men. Journeyed. Say journeyed. Journeyed. Through the night to Bet-Shean. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bet-Shean. And went to Jabesh where they burned them. Come on, somebody say all the valiant men. Man, this is exactly what your pastors have been preaching to you. This is exactly what the message of LCM has been since its inception. Since God spoke it into being. This idea that we need a Samed team fighting approach to what we do. This is not just the special forces that went and did this act of righteousness. This was all of the valiant men that joined together. You know, we highly hold David's mighty men. How they could stand. And we want to be men who can stand even if everyone else runs. That is so true. I can't even, I can't even stand it right now. You know, it's better than a single man standing righteously. Is all of the valiant men standing righteously. Come on. Do we have a valiant man in this house today? Yeah. Come on. Let's prove it. Let's be valiant men in this place. You know, those valiant men were not valiant for a few minutes. The scripture goes on to say they marched All night long. Come on now. All night long. All night. Valiant men that joined together and they outlasted the darkness that was around them. Mm. How do you prove that you're valiant? You go all night. All night long. Valiant men fight throughout the night. We don't Amen. sleep. We don't slumber. We go to win back those that have fallen to the power of darkness. Amen. We go Amen. to reclaim the trophies. We believe in a resurrecting God so we cannot quit while it is dark outside. Amen. Colossians 1.13 is our older brother. And he rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And he brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. This is what we learn from our mighty older brother. When it's dark, the valiant light of God appears. And it pierces the darkness. It separates the darkness. And it will rescue those that are trapped. We go on in this very story. It's not done yet. 
We find out that King David restored their bones. In 2 Samuel 21, he goes and he takes their bones from this place and he buries them in the tombs of their fathers. In other words, he restored the hope of a resurrection. Anybody can point to somebody who has fallen, but it takes a man of God to march through the night with his friends and rescue the fallen and give them a hope of a resurrection again. Come on, somebody, where are you at? You had never fallen down and needed to be picked up. You had never fallen asleep when you should have prayed. Valiant men go all night, but you cannot do it alone. You'll have to stand with somebody who says, Come on, man, wake up. Wake up. That shin's creeping up on you. Stand up and fight. Amen. Come on, one of the defining factors that we see in King David, and it also defined these valiant men, is that they were men that were determined. And their determination was based on a hope of restoration and resurrection. Do you know what that process looked like? It meant going and taking those bodies and burning them in the holy fire of God. And that what remained were just the bones that they then they could go and put in a safe place. And not leave room for the enemy to continue this cycle of taunting the promises of God. Making shame and ridicule of the men of God and therefore making shame of the name of God. Come on, we have to have the ability as valiant men to look at a situation, put it in the presence in the fire of God and let the flesh burn away. And then what remains is the resurrection hope of bones. We have to have those eyes that see what will be in the future and put it in the safe place to be kept as a memorial of God's restoring power. Anybody know what they carried to Joseph's out of Egypt because it sure wasn't his flesh? What not left but his bones. Sometimes this world will tear every bit of flesh off of you. But what's left can be resurrected by the living God. You better fight for that resurrecting hope. You better stand with the men of God and fight all the way through the night. You know, there's a certain attitude that even Joseph displayed in asking for his bones to be carried to the promised land. And that is, I may not have started this fight, but I'm sure as I'm going to finish it. Ain't that right, Peter? I think I've heard you say that a couple of times about your past and not about your future. Give Peter a break. The girl had a knife. She did have a knife. Yeah, that's true. Because we're not going to repeat that mistake. We have a great hope in your future, Peter. Amen. I like your hat, too. Come on, let's pull up this next slide and look at some of the definitions for the town of Bet Shin. Bet Shin. In Hebrew, it can mean house of security. Say security. Security. That sounds like a good thing, right? Well, there's also an alternative Sumerian translation. means house of the serpent god. Come on, what was that creature that first deceived mankind? And he deceived with the promise of security. You know, it took the whole reign of David and even going into Solomon's millennial reign until it was possessed because this is the house of the serpent, their house of security, except Bet Shen lies within our inheritance. Wow. There really is a whole lot of Bet Shen in this world. The people of God have to work through a great deal of BS to gain the inheritance that was promised. That's Solomon true. did it. Jesus did it, and we can do it too. Can you do it? 
Yes. Are you going to do it? Yes. Are you determined to do it? Yes. It might take all night, but you're standing with valiant men. We're going to do it. Amen. Let's briefly look at Solomon before we look at our ultimate example. Our great bloodline older brother, the Israeli king, Jesus himself. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 12. That was really fast. Yeah. Brother had a prophetic utterance about the scripture address. Incredible. His notes are one. First Kings chapter four and verse 12. This is a list of Solomon and his district governors. Baana, son of Ilud, in Ta'anak and Megiddo, and in all of Beth Shean, next to Zarathon, below Jezreel from Beth Shean to Abel, Mehola, across to Jokmimim. Look, you could hear every one of those names. Maybe you went right back into Megiddo, trouble from the get-go, Mission Ben Ghetto. I don't know what you were thinking about, but I doubt seriously that when you hear Baana, son of Ahulud, you're like, oh yeah, now I got it. I, up to this point, Pastor, I had no idea what you were talking about, but now clearly I got it. What's happening right here is it's the first time in biblical history that that area of the Jezreel Valley between Bet Shean and Megiddo is being occupied. Solomon took the cultural stronghold of the world, Bet Shean. He did it because he was determined. He subjected it to God's plan. He subjected it to God's kingdom and the kingship of an Israeli king. This is what happens when one life stays appropriately determined. It is what happens when one family stays appropriately committed and determined. It's what happens when one nation stays committed to the determination of the kingdom. Are you determined? Yes. You're not going to be a trophy on the enemy's wall, are you? No. No. Amen. Now that we've said BS, which was slightly humorous, I think, and we've explained the impact of the spirit of Bet Shean, which is more sobering than humorous. We want to show you how Bet Shean translates to our cultural norms. Is that okay? Yes. Look at this next slide. This is a slide of what is called the cardia, meaning the center or the heart. It's like the main street of Bet Shean. In this cardia, on your right and left, you would have. Uh, commerce, you would have shopping, you'd have meeting places. And you, I mean, you could think of this as the town epicenter or town center like we have so much around here in Houston. You know, the things that roll around in your cardia, which is this is the, the root word for cardio. Your heart. Your heart. These indicate exactly the state of your epicenter, just like it did here for Bet Shein. Let's take a look at the next slide. This is the same street that you just saw, the same cardia. We've just pulled back out a little bit so that you can see more of Bet Shean as it's been preserved. Can you see straight ahead the hill, the tail that's right there? There was a temple on top of that tail. There was a temple on that hill. You can almost say that it was the mega church of their day. Easily exalted. Man, so easy to see. Everybody knows about it. I've even heard it said of some mega churches that they start to have their own gravity. People start to come to them. Slightly to the left is the bathhouse, full of debauchery and lasciviousness. It's interesting that those things are on the left. 
Slightly to the right, you have the theater full of conservative entertainment and athletics. Mm. When you're looking at that picture, it's hard not to notice the proximity of the left, the right, and the megachurch. What we're looking at right now is the view of the bathhouse. It's, again, slightly to the left. Its activities involved the gratification of the flesh. And they worked within their society to say, if it feels good, it can't be wrong. In this bathhouse, everything that you can think of that might go on in a hotel that has hourly rates is going on. And many things that because you're pure, sweet people of God, you would never consider are going on slightly to the left of the main drag and within view of the mega church. Let's look at the next slide. This is a view of the amphitheater in Betchian. Here you had a very conservative form of entertainment and athletics. Uh, and in relation to the cardio, it was slightly to the right. You know, something a little more safe and applicable. But in this uh, amphitheater, you had things that went on such as men dressing up as women and performing arts. Mm. You had little boys being used in a variety of ways, but not in the pleasurable ones. You had here, not in this exact spot, but something like it, where they chanted for two hours, great is Artemis in Ephesus. You know, here they found a safe place to pretend about real sinful conditions. You know, Matthew and I have been talking about amphitheaters for a few weeks. And when you look at that, it's the most interesting thing. I, Matt's smarter than I am. It's always been that way. No. I couldn't make it out. I, I tried to read the text and I, I couldn't get it. I'm like, Matt, I don't understand how this, uh, how this relates. The Strong's number for this place was 666. And uh, its Greek word is Hollywood. <laughs> Go look it up. Let's see if you find it. The truth is, is what we're saying here is that most believers would say that the center of their heart is the church. But we see here in Bet Shein that slightly to the left is a lascivious bent of personal gratification and our own comfort. Likewise, slightly to the right is the idolatrous bent of entertainment and even athletics. When you're considering those things, the truth in my honest view is that there's nothing in Bet Shin that is slightly anything. When you have eyes to see, it's entirely worldly. But it's dangerous when you consider how close it is to our own home. True. How is your heart right now? Seeing that you have some BS to deal with today. Are there worldly pursuits that you are determined to hang on to today? Are you getting a picture of your own iron, iron chariots today? As you can tell, we're trying to make this not just something of the past. We're trying to bring it into today. Let's see just how relevant, pertinent, and spiritually similar Bethshean is to our world. I mean, let's bring it right down to where we live, literally. Let's look at the pattern seen in Bethshean 
and how it's replicated in our modern day city of Houston, Texas. Are you ready for this? This is good. No, no. Are you ready for this? What's wrong with you? Wait, Damien. Okay. Okay. What we have here is a model. When you arrive at Bet Shein, they help you to have an understanding of what it must have been like. Actually, many places that you go in Israel will have these models to help you understand the scope of what you're seeing. So we've circled some things for you so that you can see. The hill that you were looking at is right to your right, and it's the top right of your screen. That that is where the temple would have been, which we're calling the mega church. Next, we see the bathhouse and sports complex. We see an amphitheater, which we've already shown you pictures of, and we see a big coliseum here in this area. I want you to take a look at that for a minute and soak that in. Say, I got it when you have it. I want you to see the next slide then. This is a Google image view, Google Maps. You're welcome to look at it yourself and find the satellite view of Houston. Now, you may not see it at first, but this is what... uh, This is what rocked my heart as we were studying. Can you show the next one? What we have is a coliseum. We have an amphitheater or a giant meeting place. We have a sports complex all exactly as what we saw in Bet Shein. Come on, Pastor, you're making a stretch. No, we're not making a stretch at all. We're showing you this is a Google Maps search from two days ago, and you're welcome to prove us right. You're welcome to look at it. Oh, did I say that out loud? You know, the only thing that's not in this picture was where the megachurch was. I was like, wow, I can't figure out where the megachurch is. So I had to back out of it and get a different view. And in the next slide, you actually see that. You see that you have a megachurch right down the cardia from where all of these other meeting places are. You know what's interesting? You're not going to believe me. You're welcome to check these things to prove us right. Uh, the distance from the mega church to where we're talking. Let's say it was the Coliseum part. Well, that's right at six miles. The distance to the uh, amphitheater and the meeting place. Right at six miles. The distance to the sports complex. Right at six miles. Hmm. It's almost like the God of this world is working something over on us and we are just blinded to the reality. To the reality of the way our world is set up. It's hard to distinguish these things. You would think that we were making it up, except you can see it and you can prove it yourself. This is an incredible thing that we have to be determined to fight, my friends. It turns out that the book of Ecclesiastes was uncannily prophetic. The truth is, is there is nothing new that is under the sun. And this is not a singular megachurch problem. In fact, those places wouldn't exist if there was not a popular demand for them. Ultimately, the spirit of Beit Shin is trying to get you to put a church on a hill while you accept all of the other elements of worldly society. The truth is, is that church that was on the hill, it at times was dedicated to Dagon and at other times other gods. In fact, it really didn't matter as long as you were sincere in your beliefs. We need to wise up, saints. Mankind's heart has always been inclined to do what is evil. It's been that way since the beginning. It happened as soon as we decided to choose for ourselves what was good and evil and depart from God's word. Throughout the ages, however, 
No matter how many times we've seen idolatry in a new package, the answer to that is that God would put his hand on an individual. That your whole being would be brought back to life. See, idolatry comes in many different packages. Sometimes they're in red and green packages with Christmas lights. Look at this a little bit further. In 1 Corinthians 10, 14, I'll just uh, summarize it for you. It says that we're to flee from idolatry. Well, how do you flee from something that literally is completely surrounding you? Do we do like Manasseh? And we just move as far away as possible and not engage and not deal with the BS that's embedded within our inheritance. You must deal with BS the same way that our older brother Jesus did. Let's look at how he successfully countered the effort, effects of idolatry starting in the region of Bethshean, also known as Decapolis, because the worldly city had defined the culture so that there were nine more cities just like it. Are you guys getting this transition with us? Turn to Mark chapter 7, verse 31, and we're going to see this in a, in a more illuminated way here. So when the older, in the Tanakh, what we see is that we call it Bet Shein. In the Newer Testament, in the Brit Hadashah, what we see is that this is the capital of the Decapolis. It was so vile there in Bet Shein that it was the capital of the idolatrous world that was there. It was the entire region. Let's take a look at Mark chapter 7 and verse 31. It says this, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. This is Bet Shen times 10. This is an anti-Ten Commandments. This is a worldly system in effect in every possible way. There. Somebody say there. 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 Some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged him to place his hand on them. You know what the problem with idolatry is in any area of our life? Is that the effects of idolatry are that you become just like the idols that you're serving. Mm. It gives you deaf ears and a mute tongue. The term here, hardly talk, is not as much that he was soft of speech, but that he was mute in what he could say. He could not speak to people. When you're considering all of this, to help you get into that first century mindset and see how it translates now, every single Jew had to make a decision. Bet Shan is on the edge of the, Jerus- of, of the Jordan Valley Rift. This is how you move north and south in Israel, where any Jews that lived in the north had three times a year to go to the south. They had to go there. That meant that you had to choose when you come towards Bet Shen what you do. Do you stay there overnight? Do you go through it but keep moving at a brisk pace? Do you go all the way around it? Are you faced with choices like that? Do I go into a, a Circle K because they sell zigzags that people use to smoke weed? Do I go into this business because they support gay rights? What do I do with idolatry that is all around me and I don't know how to flee from it? You have to choose how to react to it. 
And if you're looking to your left and right to see how your brothers are reacting to it, what if God has led their family for different reasons to react to it differently than He's leading you? Notice these people in Bet Shin and the Decapolis in the kind of satanic decalogue here, they were spiritually deaf. They were unable to speak the word of God. So while in one sense they're an enemy, what are they in another sense? They're a victim. There are already trophies on the wall to Bet Shin. If we avoid them, if we walk around them, if we will not walk through them, then where does that leave them? Verse 33. After he took him aside. Say took him aside. Took him him aside. aside. Away from the crowd. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit And touch the man's tongue. I'm going to be honest. I've seen all of those movies about Jesus. Jeffrey Hunter, the white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Viking, plays Jesus. You know, I've seen them all. I've never seen a movie that displays this. You know, you need to be healed. (laughs) Open your mouth. (laughs) We edit the gospel to be more appealing to us. Jesus was anything but conventional. Anything but that. Consider reading this or seeing this for the first time. He took him aside away from the crowd. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh. Somebody say deep sigh. Deep sigh. Said to him, Ephathatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened and his tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. I want to focus on this first part that we read in verse 33 of took him aside. You know, Jesus took this guy aside from the world, aside from the worldly crowd. You know what that looked like in my life? From the day I was born again moving forward, that the love for God, the love for the things of God, begin to clash with the love for the things of this world. And three months after I was born again, I had the splendid opportunity to be baptized in front of my entire school body. You know, when you're a sophomore, you've just graduated from beneath the pile of manure, and you're not necessarily at the top as a senior, so you're trying to gain a reputation, right? At this point, where I was working my craft to be in the in crowd, Jesus called me out and away from that crowd. He told me, go stand before your entire student body and be baptized. Mm. They were offering it. And I knew from my experience so far that, number one, the only people that went down to go get baptized were those that were geeks, nerds, and the social rejects of the entire world. And by standing with Jesus, it also put me next to those that the world didn't want anything to do with. But when I stood there in obedience, separated from the crowd, I saw a few eyes gaze upon me in admiration and inspiration for a love and dedication for Jesus. I saw most looking at me with a question saying, why are you down there? And if you're down there, what does that say about me? Because you were right next to me. It resulted in a 
few months or years of persecution from those that were my best friends and later became my best friend in Jesus. <laughs> let's, let's be clear about what Pastor Piro is saying. He separated from the crowd, but he was still in the crowd. He was in the world, but he was not of the world. I felt that separation. I was angry because of it. I lashed out at Matthew from it. I felt separation because he was different, but he was not so far away that I didn't have to watch his example. He didn't go hide in a monastery. He didn't turn the lights off in his house and lock the door. He was a burning, shining light in Betsham. Amen. Amen. Jesus then put his fingers in the man's ear. What an interesting thing. That finger of God. The one that amazed the magicians in Egypt. And they said, this must be done by the finger of God. Mm. The same finger of God that inscribed the tablets to give us a loving law. A loving word from the heavens. That same finger of God that is described in the Newer Testament as, a, as the very Holy Spirit of God. He put his fingers in the man's ear and it affected his hearing. For, what does that look like in our lives? Have you been around the word and then all of a sudden at some point something it quickens to you? You finally hear it in a different way. There's finally revelation. I know you said that before. It's usually this way with our children. That we say it and 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 say it and, it and, say it and, and then someone else says and they're like, huh, why didn't somebody tell me that? Was that just in my house? <laughs> Sorry. But the idea is that unless God, unless the the king of all creation puts his fingers in our ear, we're going to be forever deaf to the truth and the revelation that he has. Amen. See, the majority of response among people who love the Lord and are within orthodox is walk around the city of Bethshan, get nowhere near it. And I understand that. If you have a deep abiding longing for the things of the world, don't get anywhere near them. But if you were so in love with the king of kings in the city of our God that you can stand to walk through the city, you were there to rescue souls. How would this man hear the words of God if the finger of God never touched in his ears? And let's be very clear. The finger of God was in a first century Jewish man named Jesus. Yes. See, if you will not encounter the things of the world, how do you ever transform the things of the world? Their land is inside of our inheritance. We have to confront it. We cannot hide from it. And yet, wisdom says if you are in danger of being overcome by it, you do not go near it, grow stronger. Amen. Do you hear me? This is why one family stays overnight in the city. Another passes through rather quickly. And a third goes all the way around it. They are in different places in regards to that area of Betshan. And we must not judge them for it. We have to take our stand where Jesus does. Because Jesus does this next. He touched the man's tongue. The very finger of God affects this man's speech. Man, we all know what happens when the Spirit of God gets a hold of a man's tongue. Can somebody say, Shanda Bahaya? Shanda Bahaya. When the spirit of BS leaves you, the Holy Spirit enters you, and something altogether beautiful happens. Amen. Amen. 
Well, what we see here in this example in our older brother Jesus is that gateways were opened, right? So the man could not hear. The man could not speak. He could not interact with God's word in going into his heart and his mind. And he could not reiterate God's word to bring liberation to other people. What is at stake in our ability to access this finger of God? People's lives, their, their access to the opening of gateways, much like what the culmination of his presence coming back here on earth will be and going to Megiddo and going to Beth Shan to confront the very gateways that are strongholds of the enemy and making them possessions of the living God. Mm. Come on, let's look at the next verse here on the screen. In verse 34. He looked up to heaven with a deep sigh. Let's go to verse 35. The idea here is that when ears are opened, when tongues are loose, the passage says that he began to speak plainly. You know what I thought when I first read that? He could not speak and then he began to speak. There was sound that then came out in an intelligible way. You know, when I looked at it in the Greek, you know what the word there is? It's orthos. As an orthodox. Come on now. When God gets in you, when He begins to touch your ears and touch your tongue, you know what happens? It's not just that you can say something. It's that you have the right thing to say. Amen. It's that you have something that has moral uh, absolutes in Him, that you begin to speak the truth. This man began to speak truth when God touched him. Come on, Come on somebody. That is a powerful testimony to what our lives are and what they should reflect. That's good. The something went into the man's ears. It was the finger of God, which is the Holy Spirit in the Bible. More than that, something from Jesus' mouth went into his mouth. He touched his own tongue and then touched the man's tongue. There was a transference of the very substance of the Word of God. Come on, that's good. And then the man's tongue was loosened and he began to speak with moral clarity. Come on, somebody. Yes. Have you been touched by the finger of God? Yes. Are you the body of Christ? Yes. Then how will they be touched by the finger of God? Through us. We're going to have to grow stronger. Amen. This is our older brother, the Israeli king. He is defeating the BS in this world. One life. At a time. Amen. Both Israel as the older brother and Jesus as in Israel personified as our older brother teach us that when dealing with Beit Shin in this world's culture, we have the power to take them aside. Somebody say we have the power to pull them out. We have, we have the, the power, power to, pull to pull them, them out. out. See? If you get filled with the Spirit of God in the right way, if He's touched your ears, if He's touched your tongue, they're not as much of a danger to you as you are to them. We put God's finger in their ear. We put God's finger on their tongue so that they can speak plainly. They then become a part of the valiant men that are marching all night to rescue others. They advance the kingdom of God and they defeat the culture of the world. In this example, Jesus focused on the one life that was in front of him within the Decapolis. But in our next example, in the Gospel of Mark, you will see him deal with an entire family at once. Let's go to Mark chapter 5 and start in verse 18. Say, God's not done with Israel. God's not done with Israel. Amen. Does that mean you're all there? Yes. 
All right. Amen. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home. Everybody say home. Home. To your family. Say family. Family. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. What was done in one's, one man's life was first and foremost for his own family. And his family's testimony would spread throughout Bethshan and all the other nine cities. The truth is, is every ministry begins with one life dealing rightly with their own family. Every family will affect the world around them. Let's look at this again in Matthew chapter 4 verse 25. Are y'all with us here? We are coming to a place where we are going to turn the laser-like focus of God's word onto you personally. So you're going to want to pay attention. We're going to get this BS out of here. Amen. Amen. Matthew 4.25 says, Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. You know, what starts as small as one life and as small as one family affects a small fishing village in Galilee. And then in turn, the families of that small fishing town begin to affect Bet Shean and the other nine cities of the Decapolis, which truthfully is very much like a modern day Las Vegas. Yeah. Come on now, when we begin turning over the Decapolis, when Las Vegas of the day is turned right side up the kingdom of, for the kingdom of God, it begins to spread to the other metropolitan areas like Jerusalem. In fact, it'll catch the whole world on fire with an Israeli fire. Amen. Amen. Come on, this is the true impact of having the determination to deal with the BS around us so that we can open the gateway to the larger world around us. Come on, if our hearts are not perverted on the left and not perverted on the right, if the center of our hearts is truly the church of God and not a mega worldly church, if our ears have been touched by the finger of the God of Israel, if our tongues have been touched by the finger of the God of Israel, then we can follow our older brother's example in dealing with the BS of our culture around us. We are strong. We are more numerous than you realize. And we can take this land to its furthest limits. Amen. The God of Israel will cause something to happen. Their iron chariots will get stuck in the mud. Their strongholds will become places that they are stuck in and not protected by. They will be given over to the districts of the kingdom of God. This happens as one life gets set on fire. One family then is caught on fire. All of a sudden the strongholds in a nation begin to come down. Amen. Come on, we must evaluate this morning. How is your heart? Does it lean to the left? Or does it lean to the right? What is in the center of your heart? How's your family today? Are they more drawn to the gratifications of the bathhouse? The entertainment of the amphitheater? Or the ease of the mega church? We're in a battle of determination for your very life. Your family's life. And our nation. And it starts with what you do here today. We want to take a little bit of time to reflect on what you've heard. 
As we do that, we want you to understand that standing with Jesus Christ against the spirit of Bet Shin, the God of Israel begins to fight for you. The history of Megiddo all the way to Bet Shin in the Jezreel Valley is a history that in the past God has fought for. A history that in the present God is fighting for and a history that God will fight for in the future. This is to give you total assurance that although there are iron chariots there, the God of Israel will fight for you when you take your stand against the cultural strongholds of your day. Now we have to ask, how did the God of Israel fight for them in this area? The iron chariots that... Deborah and Barak had to go and face. They were commanded by a guy named Sisera. And the thing is, is he had a greater army than them. He had greater weaponry than them. He had iron chariots and they didn't have any chariots. But the God of heaven, the God of Israel, looked upon the battlefield and it began to rain. Suddenly the iron chariots that were considered such an advantage became a tremendous detriment. The soldiers couldn't get out of them fast enough before the sons of God got to them. This is exactly our position. The very things that the spirit of Beit Shin has taught its inhabitants to revere are the things that are trapping them. And it just takes a son of God to go and liberate them. Of course... To be on the liberating side, you have to make sure that you don't have iron chariots in your own life. Have family connections become greater than kingdom connections in your life? Is that evident to you in the holidays as you feel torn between what your family lineage says you must do and what the king of kings says you must do? Because you might just find an iron chariot that you need heaven to reign upon. The good news is when you stand with the God of Israel, the rain begins to fall. Do you have traditions that are based on secular ambitions? Because you might have found another iron chariot. You need your child to become a lawyer. You need him to play football at a Division I school. You need her to get her Ph.D. If that tradition is in conflict with what God himself has said to you, then that iron chariot was given to you by B.S., not by the Holy Spirit of God. We need the Lord to reign upon that for you today. In general... Do you have personal goals that came to you straight out of the temple at Bet Shin instead of the house of God at Bethel? We have a way of accepting amphitheaters, coliseums, and popular mega-worldly pastors and their philosophies. When in reality, what has to happen is one life has to stand up. Has to say, you know what? I did this last year. I did this last week, but I can't do this anymore. The Lord has begun to reign upon my life. The Spirit of God is putting His finger in my ear and touching my tongue, and I have to take a different stand. 
I used to avoid all of this together, but now I have to get involved. Or I used to be involved, but overcome, and now I have to get away from it. The Lord's reign in your life might carry you in a different direction than your neighbor. But the reign of the king should come from the reign of heaven. And now's the time to examine that. Because hear me, what you do with your life, the decisions you make with your life, they affect the family that is around you. And your family affects the world that is around you. Valiant man of God, I am speaking to you tonight. How must you and your family face the cultural darkness of Bet Shin? Maybe what you've always done is not good enough. Maybe you have some iron chariots inside your walls. We're going to begin to sing and pray for the rain of heaven to fall in our lives. So that those chariots will get stuck and the sons of God can prevail because you mark my words. Bet Shen is not the enemy stronghold. It's the next inheritance of the people of God. Would you please stand to your feet? When the Spirit of the Lord is moving among us, when prophecies are happening, like when the dross rises to the surface, I'm purifying you, but you must skim it off. You know what that caused me to do? I ran straight to my two covenant partners and apologized to them for my behavior, not 20 years ago, not 10 years ago, not two months ago, yesterday. Because I did not want to stand on this stage covered in BS. Have you been covered in it your whole life? There is something so liberating about the reign of God falling. It washes away all of the spirit of Beit Shen. And it sticks those strongholds in the mud and allows you to walk freely into victory. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that you find the freedom of the sons of God so that you can set others free. And I'm asking you to open up your hearts, open up your arms, open up your spirit to receive the reign of heaven because we cannot be in this world without affecting it for the kingdom of God. Almighty God, we cry out to you. You are the great evangelist. Your spirit is the only power of holiness on the planet. So we are saying, pour out your spirit on us that we might be like our older brother, like our king, the freer and savior of Israel. Almighty God, touch your finger to us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.